welcome to the Mind Talk podcast. You are with myself, Nathan, and my co-host, Edwin. You know, Ed and I have been looking forward to this podcast and purely because, um, you know, we're dealing with a very talented individual. I think for me, uh, a further plus is that she's a blog writer. And for myself, I really, really just love to read and love to just deduce information. And a, a wonderful part of her blog is that it's very actionable. So not only can you read something and, and actually get something from the blog, it's actually something that you can actually implement into your own life. Now, this individual is a school exercise and performance psychology coach. Her services are for both individual and groups. Some of her clients include athletes, personal trainers, and coaches. One of her clients described her service as top-notch quality. <laughs> and again, um, she has a, a performance psychology blog. And two of my personal favorites are Calm First, Then Intensity, and Thinking Less Equals Better Performance. So without further ado, a warm welcome to... Annika McGiven. Thank you. Thank you so much, Annika, for coming on to this podcast. It's such a delight to be here and chatting with you guys. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. We really, really, really hope this conversation does is justice because we have really been looking forward to this. There is so much to unpack. Um, and we have to say just from the start, you know, we really, really appreciate you and, you know, we really, really respect what you're doing. So um, just going into it, we, we don't really want to use the, the word. We're not going to use the L words, um, but you know, you, you're going to know where I'm going with this. Um, in the last year, what has been your, the, the biggest change for you since the L word? What has been the biggest change for you in terms of business? There's been a lot of changes. Um, I suppose uh, shifting online was probably the, the immediate and, and largest challenge. And it was one of those things where when first sort of faced with the with the necessity of doing that, I wasn't really sure how it was going to work. Um, so much of my work has always been about sort of that direct contact with people and being there in the action of, of, of sports. And, uh, and so it was hard to imagine how that was all going to work uh, online. But I'm really happy to say, you know, a year in that it's worked better than I could have imagined. And that I think that the essence of the human connection that kind of sits at the, the heart of what I do is still re still achievable um, online. Um, of course, there's been some changes, you know, sport isn't happening in the same way that it was before for now. And so uh, I've been working less with teams purely because a lot of the teams are kind of all on pause. Yeah. Um, but that's meant that I've been working more with individual athletes, which has been really uh, rewarding and fun. So, yeah, I'd say that's probably the biggest, the biggest shift. Okay, thank you. That's good. That's good. And let me try and move away from a lot. <laughs> Is that it? Uh, yeah, let's try and move away from that. So, what was your first introduction to sport? So at the age of five, um, my mother took me with her to arrange some writing uh, classes, horseback riding classes for some students at the language school that she was running at the time. And I don't remember this, but the story goes that I wouldn't stop talking about it once I'd seen the horses and, and wanted to, to do the lessons myself. And so she rolled me not knowing what she was getting herself into. And uh, <laughs> sort of from the age of six on, then I, I started uh, riding horses and very quickly then transitioned into to um, riding horses competitively, which became a huge, huge focus in my life. 
funnily enough, um, equestrians are notorious for not even really thinking of themselves as athletes. We tend to put all of the emphasis on the horse. We, we consider the horse the athlete and don't uh, think that way about ourselves as much. Uh, but of course we are. And that's part of my work now is trying to help other equestrians see that and own that. Um, and so, yeah, so that was my first introduction to the, to the world of sport. And um, it was a very individual sport. And then um, I suppose had all the usual experience with team sports throughout high school but that love of, of equestrian was always my real focus and um is what eventually led me to sports psychology okay what about the dynamics of you know getting yourself onto a horse um was there you know from an early age was it very easy for you to get onto a horse without the fear of you know fooling her in yourself or was that a gradual process where there was a there was a, a part where you were scared but you know, you just persevered and eventually it just became natural. Talk to us about that process. It was as natural as breathing when I was a kid. I don't remember having any fear. I remember having an absolute just sort of enthralling love and fascination with horses. Um, I think what happens is as you get older and your your falls and crashes start to accumulate <laughs> and you have, you know, you have a few, maybe a more realistic understanding of what can go wrong when you can get on a horse. That's maybe when you have to start battling with a little bit more fear. Yeah. And actually, it's one of the main themes that I come up against in my work with equestrian athletes is how do we face that fear, which is often grounded in a very real situation. So, you know, routinely equestrians would have like pretty serious crashes where they may have actually really hurt themselves quite badly. Yeah. Um, and so that fear is real. And yet that person wants to keep riding and wants to, to continue participating in the sport. And so it becomes about how do we manage that in a way that it doesn't prevent us from carrying on? It can be really interesting. Yeah. And would you say that fear in, in this type of sport comes more with age? Yes, it absolutely increases with age. And I, I think my theories around that are because the, the longer you've been in the in equestrian sport, the more you see things go wrong, either for yourself or you witness, you know, all the crazy wacky things that can happen with horses happen to other people. Mm-hmm. And which that, that makes it seem like the likelihood of those things are somehow, or the likelihood of those things happening to you so seems higher even if like statistically speaking it's not um and then of course just the accumulated experience of having your own falls or crashes to to deal with and so yes it is it's definitely something that becomes more challenging with age i guess my question straight straight away would be um just getting used to discomfort um how did you prepare yourself into um, discomfort you know getting hurt um the damage the wears and tears um you know talk to us about how you mentally you know got used to the idea that you know this comes with bumps on rides i think that when i was a younger athlete i was i very easily accepted the inevitability of the physical discomfort of my sport probably because it was something i grew up in from such a young age and, and it was very much um a part of the culture to, to you know to, to work hard to be very it's a very physical sport you're, you're out there interacting with horses and you know cleaning stables and all the stuff that goes along with that um and you fall off a lot <laughs> and so in a way you, there's a lot there's many many little falls and so in a way you sort of get used to them and, and you get used to kind of picking yourself up and pressure yourself off and getting back on um and so looking back that part i think felt was was sort of relatively easy or natural for me but what i do remember really struggling with was the the mental discomfort that came along with 
um, like things not going well. Mm. So I had a very strong perfectionist streak <laughs> as, a, as a younger athlete. And I always say now that I'm like a recovering perfectionist because it still, still gets me sometimes. Um, and that caused me a lot of mental discomfort because I would get very, very, I was very hard on myself. Um, I didn't cope with, with failures very well. Um, I would carry a lot of emotional baggage about, you know, about things not working out the way I was hoping them, hoping they did when things, when that happened. And so that just learning to do with that discomfort has been the work of a much longer process and the work of me actually going to school and learning how to be, uh, how to, how to work in sports psychology, which has played a big role in my own process of, of managing that for myself, interestingly enough. <laughs> and and now at what point did you decide, okay, from, from my experiences, I want to go out there and, and help other people. There was quite a, a kind of important experience that I had. Um, I was, I think I was 20. I was working in the States uh, near, just outside of Seattle for a professional rider there. And um, I had just gotten a new horse that year. And I was about to move up to a level that I'd been working towards and had very much sort of romanticized and idealized getting to this level for quite a few years. So it was, it was a big deal for me. And um, I jumped the gun a little bit. I, I kind of was so excited that I didn't put in the appropriate work with this new horse to really build the relationship. And I flew into this new level and had two crashes in my first two competitions. Mm-hmm. fell off cross country and um it was fine like physically it was totally fine and the horse was fine so that was all great but mentally I got really really rattled and it was probably my first experience of having like a serious setback mostly because of of, uh, of a mental issue okay. and so I it took me a long time to figure out what was happening initially the symptoms were that I just had an incredible drop in confidence and I stopped being able to see a distance to a jump which is where you um so you essentially are able to predict the takeoff point where the horse is going to leave the ground before the jump, which is a fairly important part of, of jumping a horse, being yeah. able to kind of anticipate that point. And so we call it seeing the distance and it's something you learn to do intuitively without thinking about very young. And then, but I completely lost my ability. It felt like to do this. And I started, um, my horse started stopping in front of all the jumps and it was just like meltdown basically for like, probably two months after these falls. It felt like I couldn't ride anymore. It felt like it was all falling apart. And eventually I ended up reaching out to a sports psychologist who I'd had some contact with earlier on. And he sorted it out for me in three, three one hour sessions, actually on zoom hilariously, even though that was a long time ago because we were in different areas yeah. and it just, all of a sudden it was like the fog lifted. I was, I felt, I remember feeling like I was completely in this fog. I couldn't figure out what was going on. I was so frustrated. I felt like all my work was, was for nothing and everything was falling apart. And then it was like, bing, he just explained a few things to me. I suddenly just saw so clearly what was happening. I knew exactly what I needed to do to change it. I went out there. I did it. It changed and I moved on. And it was just like the most enormously empowering and exciting experience. And I just immediately was like, oh my gosh, there's this whole other world to sport that I didn't, I wasn't aware of. And that's the mental world. And I needed to know more about it. (laughs) And so that's what kind of got me started. I think one of the things that when I, why I'm very excited about having you on is when I look at um, equestrian, my, my question I've always wanted to ask is the relationship between yourself and the horse. Um, is that something just natural or, or can they actual, can things actually go wrong between, you know, yourself and the horse? Can you maybe on your side feel that maybe this is not the right horse for me? Can you just, um, just talk to us about potential relationships that you have to build with the horse before um, actual performance? 
Yeah, it's it's a huge element of a successful performance in that sport. There's sort of there's two brains involved, there's two bodies involved, and so the ability to communicate with the horse harmoniously is central to success. Um, it's an interesting element of the sport as well because it's something that often gets sometimes an, almost like an overemphasis. So what I mean by that is that the um, the as equestrians, you can be very guilty of of sort of thinking errors where we may say think things like oh my horse doesn't like me or my horse um is you know it's being difficult on purpose you know and those are thinking errors because of course horses don't actually think that way you know they have compared to us of course very limited um thinking they're much more reactive in their way of being as opposed to analytical and so those types of interpretations on the human side can, can lead to frustration, which can then impact the partnership. Um, but yeah, there can certainly be, you know, horses have their own little personalities. And so I see it all the time that sometimes the personality fit is a little more difficult. If you have a really high energy human and a really high energy horse, <laughs> the combination can be a little too much energy. Um, and sometimes if you have a, a really quiet, low energy person and a really quiet, low energy horse, it can be really hard to get anything moving anything happening um and so yeah so it is interesting that personality and and sort of the person's way of being and the horse's way of being sometimes don't fit and don't match um having said that though i think the best riders are very good at uh not sort of attaching any kind of personal um element to it and just really seeing each horse for who they are and nearly sort of adjusting their style to to get the best out of that horse and have you had times when there's been a horse and you thought, oh no, this is going to be very difficult. But in the end, the horse decides, oh, okay, I do this. Yeah, I think it comes down to whether or not we can communicate clearly enough with the horse. So much of the relationship issues with riding come down to the fact that we're not actually able to, or we're not successfully clearly explaining to the horse what it is that we want and then getting frustrated with them when they don't respond in the way that we're expecting them to. Um, so much of modern training, I'm very happy to say, is, is starting to become informed actually by psychology and learning science and it's showing it's really getting to the specific specifics of how horses learn which is helping us to be much better trainers and riders and facilitate a much happier experience for the horse which ultimately results in a better experience for the rider as well so i think that um i think that i would put the emphasis back on the rider in that case to say it's sort of our job to to make sure that we're communicating clearly enough with the horse that it can in fact do what it is that we're hoping it will do for us. <laughs> when you say um, communicate with the horse, can you give us an example of how you know one would clearly communicate with the horse? So horses respond um, largely to pressure and it's um, the the basic way that we train them is through pressure and release. So we apply pressure in a certain area. The horse naturally moves away from pressure. And so we use that to move them, I suppose, in the way that we want to. Um, So for example, we we might want the horse to move over to the left. And so we would typically um, put pressure on with our right leg against their right side. They would then move over and we would release the pressure as soon as they start to move which gives them the little reward that says oh they did the right thing and so then the horse learns okay every time the rider puts pressure on me like that and i move and i move this way then that pressure will release and so what happens then is um it is a form of communication 
it's like a, an ongoing um, conversation essentially, but, but through these little signals and um, the horse sort of communicates back by with um, tension. So if a horse is really tense, we can tell that maybe it's stressed or not understanding um, and other sort of little signals that you would pick up to interpret the horse's mood. So it's quite cool. It's really quite a beautiful thing, I think. And when it's done well, you get the amazing result, which is, you know, um, the magic that happens when when horses and riders are able to produce pretty amazing performances. Okay, and then from that, you um, you moved into the career of sport psychology. How did you go about transitioning? So it's sort of a gradual thing. So um, after high school, I went and worked in a few different places around the world for professional riders and like really went hard on the, the for my own professional riding dreams. Yeah. Um, when I was, yeah, 2021 um, and I had I sort of hit a point. So that horse that I was explaining about before, um, he ended up developing some arthritis and in his legs just, just by sort of fluke of nature and his own genetics. And um, that led to him not being able to carry on uh, competing. And so I found myself at a bit of a crossroads. I felt I could either have invested in a new horse, which would have had to have been a younger horse, and then invested more time into getting back to where I wanted to be in the sport, or um, I was, or I could sort of choose a, a new direction. And so I decided to, to sort of park the competitive riding and go back to school and study uh, sports psychology and also invest a lot more time into coaching. So another thing that I really, really love is coaching equestrian sports. So, so I got my, I was certified as a coach and then uh, worked as a coach while I did my undergraduate degree in psychology, which I did in Canada, uh, in Victoria, British Columbia. Yep. Um, and then when I completed that, I'd always had the dream of, of moving to Ireland to do my master's. Okay. Um, and that was a long, long held dream influenced by many things. I have family here and uh, it's a great horsey culture here and <laughs> and uh, the, the proximity to Europe and, and all sorts of fun things. So so um, once I'd completed my degree in psychology, you do have to have uh, in most places, you need to have the master's in order to, to work. And, it, and you do need that extra level of training. You know, the degree in psychology is it's a nice foundation, but it's quite basic and there's nothing specific in there usually about yeah. sports psychology. So so the master's was wonderful. It allowed me to really dive at depth into that area of psychology. Um, I was also lucky enough to to find a fantastic mentor who's a sports psychologist in Canada, uh, Dave Fries, and he um, has been an amazing mentor to me, really helping me understand the practical how-to of how you taking all the theory and the knowledge and distilling it into things that that are really going to make a strong impact for athletes. So during, I mean, during this whole period of studying, are there any gems, any particular gems that, are, that stand out and, and are still relevant to you to this day? Yeah, I suppose one of the theories I think that really grabbed me early on and continues to be incredibly relevant to my work is the theory of growth mindset, um, which is put forward by Carol Dweck. And, and I can see that, yeah, it's, it's, it's really very commonly known now, which I think is fantastic. It's, yeah. it's one of those kind of game-changing theories, I think, that has so much potential in so many different areas. Um, it really, it really sort of struck me, I suppose, early on because it enabled me actually, I remember coming across it the first time, I think it was the first year psychology course in my undergraduate learning about it. And I, like, I, it's one of those moments that sticks with me because it was such a kind of like a moment of, of insight, like of, of understanding. 
yeah. that um, that helped me really understand why failure felt so terrifying to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, oh, interesting. And I also realized, I remember at that moment that I definitely had a fixed mindset about math yeah. <laughs> and was then able to actually go and address that and change that for myself, which was quite a cool experience. And as an example, I use all the time in my work now. And um, I just find that as a theory, like it, uh, as, a, as a framework for helping us see and understand why failing can feel so terrifying and why um, it, it's necessary to lean into the discomfort of growth in order yeah. to keep moving forward. I just think it's such a, a such a groundbreaking um, theory and it just, yeah, it continues to be relevant in, in all of my work today. And we've also your work today. So talk to us how you went about starting your company. Yes. Um, yeah, I suppose I went about it with a fair amount of terror. <laughs> it was uh, it was a bit nerve wracking, but exciting, kind of all at the same time. Um, I suppose it was something I'd known I was going to do. There's no, there's not really uh, when you're becoming a sports psychologist. There's not really any like businesses that are going to hire you. It's kind of it's a very entrepreneurial field, and so I sort of knew that heading into it and uh, was prepared for it. But having said that, when it got to the point like when I was done the master's and I was like, okay, now, now there's nothing left but to do this. Um, it was a little terrifying. Yeah. There's, there's this whole other learning curve, you know, to starting and owning a business that they don't really teach you <laughs> as you're learning to become a sports psychologist. So that was an interesting growth and growth mindset served me very well there. I think, uh, in my ability to kind of take that on and learn as I went. Um, and so I suppose the, the initial process was just in trying to build my, my experience. I've been lucky enough to do a lot of um, hours of that through my master's and with my mentor. And so I didn't feel like I was starting from ground zero. My coaching background also really, really helped because I was familiar with working one-on-one -on -one with, with athletes in that other context. And I'd already kind of started implementing a lot of the sports psychology that I was learning about in my coaching practice. Um, and so it was really, to be honest, the biggest barrier was just the belief in myself. I think that I had to get over believing that I was capable of it, that that I had something uh, to offer and that I was that I was able to pull together the business side of it. Yeah. And so it was a lot of taking lots of imperfect action, pushing, pushing through a lot of discomfort, um, trying to build connections and relationships. You know, I think that's really the foundation of a strong business is, yeah. is really caring about your clients and, and doing really good work with them. And then, and then what you see, or I've seen that I've been lucky enough to get really good referrals and that's what kind of builds things. So, yeah, so that was sort of the process. It's just been one foot in front of the other. And um, I'm looking back now, it's cool to, to feel like I'm at the stage. I mean, still, still so far to go and so much to learn, but to feel like I'm um, at a stage where I can say I, I'm doing it. I, I have this business and this thing that I've been kind of looking forward towards for a long time. So that's a neat place to be for sure. Okay. Um, what has been the biggest, what was the biggest shock for you um, moving into business? What was the biggest I guess culture shock for you. It's um, a great question. I think um, I think the the realization that I had to literally go and find all of my own work. <laughs> that there was like no one was going to come and give me any work. I had to go and find it, and um, and it felt like I was creating something out of nothing, yeah. which was a really interesting feeling. Um, and so, yeah, just the, the, the shock, not, not ever being able to take your foot off the gas, you know, like when you're self-employed, you don't ever really get to sort of be, okay, yeah, I've done it. Like you're always thinking what's next and what am 
am I doing next? Um, at the same time, that's probably one of the most wonderful things about being self-employed. You know, it never gets old. It's exciting. Um, and you're sort of constantly having to challenge yourself to, to innovate, which is very cool. And with the type of athletes that you work with, does it range? Can it be anyone that you work with? Mm-hmm. I'm constantly trying to expand the sports that I work in because I'm I, I love learning about new sports. My favorite thing is to get contacted by someone in a sport that I've never worked in because it's just like, ooh, this is so cool. Like you get to kind of learn this whole new um, language and all the you know the ins and outs and intricacies of that sport. Um, so it's been just a process of expanding. As you can imagine, I do a ton of work with equestrians because that's my background and that's where a lot of my my own connections have started, which is fantastic. I love that. Um, living in Ireland, I started working a lot with the the Gaelic games. So uh, hurling and football, which is a lot of fun. There is so much passion in this country around hurling and Gaelic football. It's it's really cool. <laughs> I've, I've always wanted to watch that. <laughs> oh, you should. It's, it's actually it's, fantastic. Like it's fast paced. It's exciting. It's um, it's it's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that's I'm- been great i used to love them um, watching it it used to come on it used to come on um channel four in the uk and there used mm. to be a small segment it was uh, on a show called trans world Tra- sport yeah oh, cool. yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah 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 i'd love to go on youtube and and uh and check it out tonight <laughs> oh, i absolutely love it. I, I honestly i really liked gaelic football um yeah so yeah i think for me I, i'm looking forward to this is your blogs you, you're a really really mm. good um writer um Thank you. You, you have one blog and it's entitled why thinking less equals better performance for someone new to the concept how would you explain it to them so this is another kind of very common thinking error that that i have personal familiarity with and that i see so much in athletes so it's the idea that when things aren't going well or when um when we're struggling to learn or or struggling to perform a skill yeah. that the solution to that is to try harder and to sort of nearly like force it into being. Yeah. Um, and we, it's, it's a, it's a reasonable conclusion to come to break. Like we really associate, you know, hard work with success and often um, athletes, especially um, athletes who spend a lot of time in their sport have sort of formed this, this sense that they've gotten to where they are because of a lot of effort and hard work. Yeah. And so the sensation of uh, or the idea of actually in that moment doing less can seem quite foreign and quite weird. Um, But it's a really important thing to understand because um, there are two there's two kind of modes that I like to talk about. There's training mode and then there's trusting mode. So in training mode, we are uh, learning a new skill. Yeah. And there's quite a lot of effort involved in that. Our brains like brain taking in all the information. It's it's combining all the different movements. We're getting the timing, we're getting the feel for it. And so we have to focus really, really hard and really like engage our conscious mind in yeah. that process. Yeah. However, once we've learned a skill, it actually moves out of our conscious mind and it starts to be regulated or managed by our subconscious mind. Yeah which is actually a much more, um, much more skillful area of our mind in that it can um, manage a much like a more complex layer of, of ability and actually pull skills together in yeah. this really cool way um, that our conscious mind can't really do. It can only really manage about five to seven things at any given time, our conscious yeah. mind. Um, so what happens is when we, when something, when we make a mistake and we're performing, our intuitive response is to like reach into our subconscious mind with our conscious mind and suddenly 
really try to take back control over those skills um, in in an effort to fix the problem. Um, And the interesting thing is that our conscious mind actually isn't very good at managing those skills for us. And it's much better if we leave it to our subconscious mind to to continue to to create or, or perform that skill for us. And so when we start to try harder, when we think, okay, I need to, I need to just focus on exactly how my hands are on the racket, or I need to suddenly regulate the pace of my horse, or I need to overanalyze the angle of my kick. What your ha- what's happening there is that your conscious mind is trying to take over, but it's likely that the conscious mind is going to, is going to mess it up for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the solution in that moment is to remind ourselves that we need to actually trust our skills. And that's why it's called trusting mode. Yes. We've actually spent hours and hours and thousands of hours developing these skills. Yeah. So we have to trust that they're there and that we are able to uh, to produce them when needed. And so that involves thinking less and just settling into, into doing. Um, and part of trusting mode is reminding yourself that you are okay with whatever happens because you are confident you will be able to manage whatever happens good outcome, bad outcome, medium, medium outcome, we're going to be able to manage it and we're going to learn something from it regardless. So it's this kind of this settling into the fact that we're trusting what's there. When we're in training mode, that's different because we're learning a new skill. But when we're in trusting mode, when we're in that performance mode, uh, we've got to just we've got to trust that it's there. And if it's not there, then that means we've got to go back to training mode and 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 get that skill to the point where it is uh, embedded in our subconscious mind and, and managed for us so that we can then trust in it. Okay. And in working in this type of field, you must come across many challenges when it comes to the athletes that you work with. Mm-hmm. Are, there, are there any point when you work with certain people where the, the mindset is very difficult to change the way they think? Yeah, definitely. In fact, all the time, I think it's difficult for all of us to change our mindset um, because we often associate the way we think with who we are. And we see that as like a, a very kind of unchangeable thing. We are who we are. We've always been that way. So therefore, you know, we will always be that way. It's kind of an interesting, commonly held irrational belief. Yeah. And um, and so, yeah, so it differs person to person. I, what I find is that when someone is hyper aware of the fact that there's that something's not working for them and they're actively seeking a solution, they're yeah. usually more open to, to changing their mindset. Um, if somebody is uh, not really sure if they, you know, not really sure about whether they want to change or not, then it can be much harder to, to, to help them find that shift. Um, but having said that, the, the framework of the growth versus fixed mindset is a very compelling one. And I think when explained properly, there's very few people who don't see the value in it. Absolutely. And so that is a great tool for opening someone up to the idea of mindset and how a shift in mindset can actually be of huge benefit. Yeah, myself, I'm a massive advocate for um, the growth mindset. It's absolutely, it's an absolute game changer. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to focus again back to one of your blogs it was this part i really liked it it's um the three performance zones care less careful and carefree can you just go into and just explain um briefly about each of them Mm -hmm. 
So care less is when our focus, and it actually relates kind of what we were just chatting about there. When our focus and our effort is low, yeah. we fall into care less, the care less zone. And it's characterized usually by sort of unnecessary mistakes um, brought about by a lack of focus or yeah. a lack of effort. Okay. And so we can find ourselves there when we are sometimes we're overconfident. If it's something that's actually really, really, really easy and we actually just stop paying attention to it, we can kind of mess it up. Yeah. Um, or we can find ourselves there if we actually just for whatever reason are distracted or not caring or just not putting in putting in that effort. Um most athletes don't spend much time there because most athletes really do care a lot about, about their sport and care a lot about their performance. Um, okay. But we do dip into it from time to time. So it's important to be aware of it. Yeah. On the far other end of the spectrum then is careful, which is where I find a lot of athletes spend a lot of time. Okay. Um, it's the the zone where we're trying really, really hard. So just like we were talking about there, we were, we're trying really hard. We're focusing almost too hard. We're like trying to force things to happen the way that we want them to happen. Yeah. And that zone is characterized by a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress, a very high fear of failure, um, a lot of concern over what might happen, what the implications of that failure might be for, for us as an athlete um, or for the team. And so we also make unnecessary mistakes in that zone, but they're brought about by the, the exact opposite reason, because so much of our brain is being caught up in the anxiety and the negative emotion that comes along with with all of those worries, yeah. it actually decreases our fo- or pulls our focus rather away from performing in the present moment, which is where we need to be in order to, to do the best work. Yeah. And so we get errors on both sides, but for kind of the polar opposite reason. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then in the middle is carefree. And that is the, the beautiful balance point where our effort and our focus is kind of just right. Okay. So the way that my mentor actually describes this model he uses like Goldilocks and the three bears, the porridge. He's like, how hot's your porridge? Is it too cold? Is it too hot? Or is it just right? (laughs) Which is a nice quick kind of mental image, which which I really love. And so um, the idea is that in carefree, we do care. We are putting in effort. We are focusing, but we don't care too much. We're okay. We're, we're, we're able to accept the fact that there's a risk that things might not go according to plan. Yeah. We're okay with that because we're invested in the growth mindset. And we really believe that any um, kind of any outcome is an opportunity to learn yeah. and that we do our best learning usually through making mistakes because yeah. the mistakes then highlight what exactly we do need to work on. Okay. So there's kind of, um, there's a, a very real reduction in stress, a very real reduction in anxiety when you're in the carefree zone. Yeah. You're able to be much more present in yeah. the fully moment, in the sorry, in the moment fully, and really focus in on the task at hand in the very chunked down moment to moment way. Yeah. And that's where we get that 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 kind of rush of of fun and freedom that we get when we're really just enmeshed in our sports. It's sort of akin to flow. A lot of people talk about flow. You know, this this moment, this um, state of mind where you are so entirely in the present moment that you kind of lose your sense of self and sense of time. Yeah. Um, and so if, if you're in flow, you're going to, you've got to be in carefree first to get into flow. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like a pre precursor. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that kind of, you can kind of look at different sports like um, tennis. You, we, me and Nathan talk a lot about Novak Djokovic and how mm. when he's in the zone, it's, he's, un, he's unbeatable and unplayable. Yeah. I guess it's about finding that fine balance um, from mm-hmm. taking your negative 
negative things that happen and using it in a positive light in the future. Mm-hmm. I find it so fascinating that often, again, we have this like thinking error where we think that we have to care. We have to care so much about our sport in order to be successful. It has to be life or death. If it's not life or death for us, we're not going to be motivated enough to, to do what we need to do to, to become great. Um, and it's such a sort of familiar narrative, I think. And, and it can resonate with a lot of us because a lot of us feel that way. It's kind of like that inner perfectionist speaking to us saying like, yeah. like you have, it has to be amazing. And, you know, we can't accept anything less than, than life or death input here. But that, that energy um, results in us experiencing much higher levels of, of negative emotions, essentially more of the time, stress, anxiety, frustration, uh, fear. And the more time we spend in those negative emotions, the, the lower our capacity gets for actually me- being in the moment, performing well, managing the, the you know, the, the normal stress and pressure of competition. Yeah. And so it can feel not unintuitive, but we have to actually take that pressure off of ourselves and say, no, actually it's not life or death. (laughs) If if I lose today, it's okay. um, Because I'm as long as I learn something from it, the only time losing isn't okay is if I fail to learn anything from it and fail to improve myself as a result of that. Um, And so that shift is what I think that's why carefree is kind of a nice, a nice term for it because it really embodies a sense of like, I am, I am calm. I'm okay okay, I'm going to be okay. Whatever happens, I have a plan. I'm following my plan. I'm expecting to make mistakes and I'm expecting to manage them well as they happen. It's interesting um, what you just mentioned because there's almost a, there's almost a middle ground. So what I'm I'm getting at is one of the things that um, I really like about the footballer Wayne Rooney is that he's very, very passionate and he looks like somebody when he when he leaves the pitch and, the, and and his team have lost, he is extremely upset. So, and and I guess one of the, the most iconic images of Wayne Rooney was he was just having an argument with the ref, absolutely livid. Ten seconds later, scores an absolute screamer from 35 yards, top corner, and it was against um, Newcastle. So I guess my question to you is, where do you find the balance where you don't want to almost lose, you don't want your, your, you know, your client to almost lose that competitive edge and just lose that edge where, in some respect, with some athletes being on the edge, being upset, when they leave that pitch is actually something that spurs them on. So how do you ensure that you don't take that edge from them? Yeah, it's such a great question, actually, because I think that's a really common um, point of confusion. Like, how do we how do we give up or will we sacrifice our edge if we let go of that anger or that intensity or that sense of, of driving ourselves through uh, through holding ourselves to really high standards or um, beating ourselves up over mistakes? Yeah. So first and foremost, I suppose the, what we find is that yes, anger can, um, can get things done for us. It can, it can spur us on to kind of moments of glory, I suppose. Of course that does happen. Um, the interesting thing though, is that we don't need anger to do that. We're not reliant on anger. And the problem with anger is that it's really unpredictable. (laughs) Sometimes it might result in the, in the glory filled goal from 30 years. But other times it's going to end up as making things to be a bit of a disaster, right? Yeah. Because we don't have a lot of control when we're in anger or rage and we have to have control uh, over ourselves as athletes. 
So yes, it can, you know, that's certainly true. It can help in, in isolated moments. And I think that we see those stories and and we, it feeds in this sense of that it's this necessary element of that athlete's performance that they need that anger. Um, so my argument to that is that they don't, they don't need that anger, that it's actually entirely possible to have those amazing performance results without the anger. And that actually by removing the anger, you're actually going to see more consistency because you're going to be more in more control of creating that for yourself as opposed to relying on the anger to get you there but potentially take you past so um the blog actually that i wrote about this idea of finding calm first before intensity kind of relates to that issue um the you know we look at boxers we could say boxing is an incredibly aggressive you know emotional angry sport but what we know about successful boxers is that they are actually deathly calm (laughs) because the amount of control that they need in order to be successful the amount of awareness the amount of focus that they need if they blackout raged like there'd be no hope for them they'd be they'd be out in a second so those athletes are somehow managing to achieve the calm first and then using that to build a very intentional intensity that's not relying on anger that allows them to fuel that intensity in the way that they want which is actually going to heighten their focus so I think we need to let let go of the idea that we need that for performance. It sometimes does um, appear with high performance. Absolutely. Yep. Um, it can get people there to that, to that point of high performance. Absolutely. But it's not a necessary ingredient. And actually what might serve us better is learning how to do it without that. Okay. Mm-hmm. My next question kind of relates to focus and confidence. So... Mm-hmm. Say you you were working with an athlete who had personal issues and their personal issues were affecting performance. How would you go about dealing with that? First of all, that's really common. Like we all have personal issues that affect our performance. (laughs) So most, like most of my work, there's an element of that involved. Absolutely. Because, you know, we're not just athletes. We've got all sorts of other stuff going on in our lives. And ultimately that, that comes through and, and, and affects us. So interestingly, like a lot of the the concepts that we would utilize to um, improve our performance in sport also help us improve our well-being in our life. And so there's a very cool crossover effect where um, by learning, like learning about the growth mindset helps us in sport. It also helps us in our lives because it helps us become less fearful of failure. It helps us, um, you know, see ourselves as learners first and and not feeling like we have to have it all figured out already. Uh, It helps us see that we're not defined by our failures. And that has this beautiful kind of ripple on effect. Um, And so I suppose I don't do anything uh, remarkably different. It's more about helping the athlete to apply the concepts of performance psychology um, in a way that helps them see and understand their own choice in in the experience. So if somebody's being difficult uh, and it's causing a lot of turmoil and and, uh, drama for for the client, then it's sort of about helping the client to see that they have a choice in how they react to that and how they interpret that and that that is going to determine what that person's impact is on them ultimately. Um, so it's a lot of it comes down to that idea. It's like recognizing and finding where, where we can see that we have a choice in how our own reactions are then going to sort of mitigate like what the, the event means for us yeah. um, and the impact it has over us. Um, and then um, 
part of the next step then is sort of enhancing our focus when we're in that sport environment so that we're not bringing the whatever it is that's going on in the rest of our life with us uh, onto the court or onto the field. Um, and that is an exercise in focus. And that's all about comes down to sort of training focus as a skill. Um, and, and really, it can take a lot of time and energy to train your focus to the point where you can actually really successfully separate out other things for that 60 minutes, you know, and really just be present. When you talk about, you know, focus, does that is that largely to do with meditation or are you talking about something else? Um, meditation helps. Absolutely. I think that's a fantastic tool to help with focus because what meditation does is it challenges us to, to refocus our minds sort of over and over again. Um, uh, and to practice, I suppose, a more conscious awareness of our focus. Yeah. So that is valuable. Um, but I think it can be it can be practiced without meditation as well. Yeah. Although, of course, it is a huge asset. Um, and we would practice it, I suppose, by um, I think actually one analogy that I that I find really useful in explaining this is is that every performance in any sport is kind of like a um, piece of music. There's a start and an end, and there's all the different notes in between that all have to be played in the right order in order to produce the music. Yeah. And so a performance is kind of like that because it has a start and an end, and then it has all these individual moments in between. And ideally, we give each of those moments our full attention, yeah. uh, our full presence. And in order to put together a successful performance. And so when we're meditating, we catch ourselves when our focus just drifts and we pull ourselves back to something. Um, when we're actively in a sports scenario, what's really, really useful is to um, build in sort of what we call an active or in the moment reset. Something that you can do that when you recognize that your focus has drifted, yeah. where you intentionally pull yourself back again to the present moment. Yeah. And just like meditation, as you practice that over and over again, you get faster at catching yourself that your focus yeah. has drifted and better at, at anchoring yourself back in the present moment. Um, and then it's just sort of a matter of, of just developing that as a skill and where we then are able to stay present for longer and the skill just kind of grows grows from there mm -hmm. yeah so um talk to us about how it is working with people i'm in a team setting so if someone's in a team and they're having a, a negative impact on the team how, how would you work with someone like that and how would you make it click with the team yeah, that, that can be a really interesting situation. And uh, it's sort of a common thing in groups that often there is an individual or some few individuals who don't seem to kind of mesh or, or seem to be um, affecting the dynamic, let's say, yeah. in, in a challenging way. Um, and so I suppose I always start by like working with the team as a whole first, um, because uh, when there's a group involved, everyone usually has some kind of a part to play in the dynamic, even if some people are kind of standing out as maybe having a larger challenging influence. So I think there's a lot of value in just like starting with the team first and helping the team get really clear on the strategies that they want to implement as a group in order to improve their performance as individuals and as a group. And so one way of doing that, even just as like a basic framework to start is to say, right, okay, there's three ways of winning. Um, the, the way that we commonly think about is that the score wins. 
And that's the one that we tend to fixate on. But the other two elements are, um, uh, did, did we win? Did we win as a team? And that has nothing to do with whether or not the score won. And then did I win as an individual? And that has nothing to do with whether or not the score won. And um, there's another quote from my mentor, which is great. He always says that being champions has, is, being a champion has nothing to do with the score winning. It's all about who you are and, and uh, you know, consistently winning as an individual athlete and, and as a team. And so really drawing the team's focus to that and helping them decide for themselves what it means to win as an individual. Like, did I show up? Did I manage my mistakes? Well, um, did I give it my best efforts? Did I, did I work on my focus? You know, all of those things. What does it mean to win as a team? Like, did we all show up? Did we communicate well? Did we support each other? Did we react to mistakes well? Um, so, so deciding as a group sort of what that means and then the skills and strategies that they need to implement in order to have that happen can often have this really cool kind of cohesive effect on a group where even the individuals who are maybe whatever for whatever reason kind of struggling that that as the group comes together and um and becomes more cohesive in its in its strategy that often those issues will kind of work themselves out um Another shift that can be very important is to shift a team away from um, calling each other out for mistakes towards helping someone recognize what they need to do next in order to, to, to move the game forward. Yeah. So there's often a bit of a culture in teams where like there's this sense of like we need to be on top of each other. We need to not let anybody drop. So we need to let someone know that like we need to call out that, that mistake. What I always say is like you can be sure that the athlete is hyper aware of the fact that they may the mistake like they probably don't need to be told like they're probably already beating themselves up over it right mm. um what they actually need help with in that moment is how to move forward from that mistake so we need to get into a situation where we have a clear system of how do we actually help each other reset and leave the mistake behind and refocus in the next moment so that shift can be very good for team dynamics because sometimes um tension is caused by by this energy of like i'm calling you out for this and i'm holding you to this high standard and there's kind of it can be resentments and challenges around that yeah because i think about that and i think about myself mm -hmm. if i was in the team and someone was calling me out i wouldn't like it and i know <laughs> I some certain, certain people wouldn't like it but then yeah. some people react um in a positive way mm -hmm. so it obviously kind of depends on each person and how you how you adapt to each person. <laughs> totally, yeah. Yeah, and some people like love love being called, and those are like people you can be sure probably have a pretty strong growth mindset. We keep coming back to this, but because they're able to see that as information, helpful information, feedback, that's going to help them get better. Um, and so those individuals are, are kind of already flying with that. But there's a, there's this whole other group, right, that, that don't, like, and most of us don't like, and, and even people who, who out react well outwardly probably are kind of cringing a little bit on the inside because it's not fun to be called out, right? No. Um, so instead of being having that mistake called to your attention, which what that does is it makes that mistake linger in your mind for longer, which again is distracting you from doing what you actually need to do in order to to be better in that next moment. Um, then what we need to help each other do is, is get to the point where we move past, we let go of the mistake and move on. We can come back to that mistake and look at it and analyze it after the game or after the, you know, the performance, right? Like we can figure out what happened and we can make a strategy to improve it. But right there in the moment as the game is happening, that's not the time. There's no time for that. Yeah. What we have to do is get in the next moment, trust that our skills are there for us and, and play. Um, 
And so, yeah, so it's just interesting how that, again, it's almost like a bit of a thinking error. The team can often think that that's the right thing to do, that that's what they should be doing in order to to bring up their performance as a group. But often it kind of works against you. I think um, for me, what, uh, as you was talking, one of the things, the two things come to mind. First thing is um, Floyd Mayweather, after his fights, um, you know, they would be praising him for a wonderful performance. And he would say, yes, I want to thank Al Heyman. I want to thank my uncle Roger. It's, it wasn't about him. It's always about his team. Concurrently, when I think about football, you know, maybe a footballer has scored um, a hat trick. And, you know, the commentator again is praising him and he goes, well, yeah, it's not about me. And the team one, it's about my teammates. If it wasn't for my teammates, I wouldn't have scored three goals. So yeah, they, they that that's made it a lot more interesting and make probably made me make me actually understand why um, footballers say that. Because for me, from my perspective, and me not not having this knowledge, I just think, mate, this is just fake humility. You scored three <laughs> goals. You scored three goals. Just say yes. I know I'm the man, but they yeah, don't. Yeah. It's just it's always the focus on. You know the team, so yeah, really, really, really appreciate that um, um, finding of knowledge. Um, mm. Another thing I want to ask you, going back again to your blog, this is the last one, I promise. Um, one item that I really liked was throwing the word failure out of my vocabulary. Can you just explain that, please? Yeah, so it's sort of an interesting um, uh, realization that I had myself that I realized that you, even using the word failure is so it has such like an emotional um, undercurrent or like there's all this like emotional baggage with it. Right. Like you say, like I failed, I failed the test or I failed to be a good friend or I failed. like it's just heavy. It's it's stress inducing. And I think that part of the reason that is, is that um, we're sort of taught to fear failure or be uncomfortable with failure from a young age, not directly, but, but sort of um, indirectly through our culture and the way that failure, failure is framed. And the fact, and, and I think this is changing now, like we hear so much now about how growth mindset's being taught in schools. And I think that's going to like totally change this, but for our generation, you know, we wasn't really talked about. And in, in, in popular culture, people who failed were people whose lives fell apart in an irretrievable way. <laughs> and like, it was just bad and scary. And, um, we just kind of knew that that wasn't what we, we really didn't want that to happen to us. And so I think that's part of what creates this, this heaviness, this weight around the word failure. And I noticed that I, that I would throw it out in almost like a bit of a self-deprecating way. And I noticed other people around me doing that and sort of like highlighting the fact that they'd failed, but not in a constructive way in like a, in, a, in, a, in that sort of self-deprecating way. So I just sort of thought, you know, in psychology, you learn so much about the power of language, about how the words that we use have such an influence over our own interpretation of situations. And so what you realize is that you have to be careful with your language because the words that you use actually influence how you feel about something. So if I start, to, if I tell you a whole story about how I failed in my last job, I'm probably going to come away from that feeling heavy and stressed and anxious and and worried if I tell you a whole story about how my last job didn't end very well but actually holy smokes I like learned so much from it and I wouldn't be here today if I hadn't gone through that difficult experience I'm going to come out feeling quite different so it was just sort of an idea that I had that you know maybe we need to stop using the word failure so much and let's get to the real heart of what's actually happened there because we it's almost like a blanket term too right like you can say oh yeah that relationship failed well well what actually happened that doesn't tell me 
me anything, right? Like, why did the relationship fail? Like, where? So you can't get to the lesson unless you throw out that word and actually get into the specifics of what actually happened. Then we might find out. Oh, okay, actually, yeah, like our communication was terrible. <laughs> and so you know, but then that's a piece of information that you could take away and improve on. Hopefully, maybe bring into your next relationship. So I think, and it's just sort of my own feeling around it, but I think that if we can, if we can teach ourselves to not use that word and instead force ourselves to get very specific about what actually um, happened, um, because at the end of the day, I think failing is, or failure is just something not happening the way you wanted it to or expected it to, which isn't nearly as scary as failing, even though it means the exact same thing, right? Um, So we can get to the heart of that and then we can find those lessons fast and we can move forward quicker. There's a, there's a quote, who said that? I think it's Vishen Lakiani. He's the, the founder of Mind Valley, which is quite an, an interesting organization. It's all around personal development, but he, I'm pretty sure it's him who says that we should all be failing as fast as possible <laughs> because the faster we fail, the faster we learn and, and the, the sort of greater we can then become. So um, yeah, so I just think it's an interesting thing to consider, you know, when we're using that word and if it could be, replaced with something just more helpful to us. I think this is this is probably my last question to you. So in terms of mindset, what athletes stand out to you um, just from the outside thinking, oh, their mindset looks like it's the right mindset to have? Ah, so interesting, hey, because I think it, it can be so hard to, to know. Um, as you said, you know, athletes can be very good at, at knowing what to say <laughs> on the media. It's interesting to sort of to see what uh, what and then fascinating. Like if you look at someone like Tiger Woods, you can nearly track his mindset shift. So I find that really fascinating, right? Like you can see how his mindset was clearly not working for him, and then he went through that really difficult period of growth, and then came back with an amazing mindset, and then you know went on to. So yeah, so I, I find athletes like him fascinating for that because you can nearly like see the impact and the change and the growth that they've gone through. Um, there's a controversy athlete as well in equestrian sport well he's a bit controversial he's a Canadian show jumper uh, Eric Lamaze and he kind of had a similar story of like being at the top of his game major fall from grace but then came back you know which I just think is amazing like to to come back from something like that and hit the top again is is pretty phenomenal so he definitely sort of stands out in my mind for that um yeah I think those are the stories that always really blow me away the, the people who who are who are able to own the fact that it all went wrong and to come back and keep trying again. Um, I find that very, very inspirational. And I think that we see that the, the real success is in that because, um, you know, if, if you can, if you can just keep coming back again and again from those experiences, like, uh, there's, you you never know what's going to be possible for you. It's really, you're really kind of writing your own story at that stage, which I think is very, very exciting. And that's probably why I love sports psychology so much, because I see that as being the the key component to being able to do that. Like we can't come back from those huge crashes if we don't have the mental skills on board to help us understand ourselves better and understand what happened and and go forward um i guess one of my last questions would be um in your industry or in the industry um who are the experts that are leading the way in either research or coaching methods um there's there's quite a few at the moment um who could i highlight um i think that with equestrian sport, um, 
there's this amazing um, movement called equestrian science, which is grounding um, the, the training of horses and the and coaching of, of riders in with psychology of learning. Okay. And it is, it's really, really very cool. And um, so if, uh, if anyone's interested in that, you can do a quick Google of equestrian science is going to, is going to bring that up for you. And it's, it's really the future of, of my sport. I believe because it um, it really brings this amazing integration of, of like science with the more kind of older knowledge around training horses and competing and intersects them in a way that kind of brings us back to the beginning of our conversation that allows us to be incredibly clear mm. with uh, with horses and be incredibly successful as a result of that. Um, so yeah, that's definitely a place, definitely something that I think is amazing. I think any, any, uh, resource that's sort of bringing that, that better understanding of how humans learn is fascinating because to me, that's kind of like the cutting edge of what's happening right now. It's the, it's that, um, everything that we are trying to ingrain in ourselves as athletes, it comes down to learning and there's so many blocks to learning, um, that, that prevent us from, from learning what we need to learn. And so the more we can understand about that, I think the better we can then get, learn the things that we need to learn and be successful. Um, there's, uh, there's a, there's a lady called uh, Dr. Celine Mullins, who I work with, who is doing a lot of research around habit change and learning and, and the blocks, like the external and internal blocks that prevent us from learning. Yeah. And so that's having a huge influence on um, coaching. She's more in like the, the business coaching sphere, okay. but it has all the same. I use a lot of it in my in my sports coaching world as well. Um, and it's essentially like, can we really understand what it is that prevents us from from learning, from really changing our habits? And she talks about how le- adult learning really comes down to habit change. And so the, the faster we can understand how to learn our habits and change those habits, uh, the faster we can learn. And then the more successful we can be. So it's all pretty exciting stuff. Yeah, I think with regards to habits, um, I was talking to Ed offline about um, James Clare, who has got a book, mm-hmm. um, Atomic Atomic Habits. So, yeah, I'm very much about um, habits. And I think everyone really, really should really learn the science behind habits because actually it can be really impactful on just everyday things that we do. So I guess, um, last question, um, sporting heroes, who are your sporting (laughs) heroes? I suppose, you know, growing up, um, individuals like Ian Miller is uh, an iconic, uh, Canadian show jumper, um, who has been, I think he's, oh my gosh, I'm hesitating to, to name his age now because I feel like he's been in his late sixties forever. He must be in his seventies now. Like he's just, it's amazing. And he, he was riding and competing up into, into his sixties. Um, a real, real icon in the sport. Um, and then in eventing individuals like Mary King, um, who've just, again, just been around for so long, Pippa Funnel, um, and, uh, yeah, probably those are the two, two big ones that were, I think when I think of like the heroes of my youth, the other people that I would always watch, um, those, those three were kind of really up there, but, but yeah, I suppose it's one of those things that, uh, your list of heroes only, only grows longer. And so it's amazing to see as, as, um, new generations come up through sport too, how sort of these new heroes rise to the top and you get to see how those people are taking the sport and changing it and, and bringing it forward, which is always really exciting. Okay, thank you. Um, how can people get in contact with you? So, 
Um, my website is AnnikaMcGivern.com. So you can contact me through the website if you like, or my email is easy to remember. It's just Annika at AnnikaMcGivern.com. <laughs> um, so that is, a, it's always fantastic to hear people, I hear from people directly by email if they don't want to go to the website. Um, lastly, I'm on a few different social media channels. So I'm on Instagram. Uh, the handle is at AMP underscore apartments fake. I'm also on LinkedIn, just under my name and on Facebook, although like, I'm pretty guilty of not updating my Facebook regularly. So <laughs> you'd, be, you'd be better at finding me on, on LinkedIn or Instagram or on the website. <laughs> Ed, I don't know about you, but I've got a big smile on my face <laughs> because I know this has been legendary and I know our listeners have definitely got something from from us today. I'm so, 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 so happy. Um, Annika, once again, thank you so much for just taking some time out and really just digging into, um, you know, your world. And we would love to have you on sometime again, but really, really appreciate it. Guys, thank you once again. Um, keep subscribing, keep listening. Please share it. Um, we appreciate it everything and all the support um without without you we wouldn't be doing this please keep going please keep sharing and guys until next time stay healthy and stay safe